0: Physics world.
1: Hello and welcome to the Physics World weekly podcast. I'm Hamish Johnston. Coming up in this episode, I'm going to preview some exciting new content on the Physics World website, including a feature article that explains how physicists are trying to understand why society is becoming more angry and polarised. And I'll also talk about an interview with the author of the biography that inspired the Hollywood blockbuster film Oppenheimer. But first, Physics World's Tammy Freeman speaks to a biomedical ethicist about why the rapid growth of the commercial space sector makes it imperative that we develop a universal code of ethics for doing scientific research on human subjects in space.
0: Scientific research on humans in space is crucial to maximise the safety of future space flights. It can also help address important health issues on Earth. Agencies such as NASA, the European Space Agency and others around the world perform such studies under clear ethical research guidelines. But for commercial space flights, which are becoming more and more prevalent, the rules are less clearly defined. In the coming decades, These commercial companies are looking to fly thousands of passengers and workers into space, and those aboard will have the opportunity to participate in research. But for this to happen, it's essential to develop clear ethical guidelines for these human studies. So with this aim, a multidisciplinary panel of experts has put together a policy paper with a set of guidelines that ensure human research taking place in space is as safe and productive as possible. The paper, entitled Ethically Cleared to Launch, was recently published in the journal Science. I'm speaking today with the first author of this report, Vasiliki Rahimzadeh, Assistant Professor at the Centre for Medical Ethics and Health Policy at the Baylor College of Medicine. Hello, Vasiliki. Thanks for coming on the podcast. Thanks for inviting me. So this policy paper came out of a workshop that was held to discuss these potential ethical concerns for commercial space research. So what or who prompted this workshop? Why was it needed?
2: So as you rightly mentioned, Baylor College of Medicine um, is one of only a few space medicine programs um, in in the country. And so naturally, we see a lot of human subjects research um, in in space medicine and in space flight. So this report actually was born from a research ethics consultation um, I did with some colleagues here at the Center for Medical Ethics and Health Policy, um, helping the Translational Research Institute for Space Uh, Health here at Baylor on the ethics of recruiting healthy volunteers for um, a study on intracranial pressure um, in spaceflight. And so in that study, there were involvement of um, commercial spaceflight companies, um, and it in doing a write-up and an ethical analysis um, of that study, it exposed really different rules um, and regulations for research involving humans when it was sponsored by a government or a space agency like NASA um, versus commercial spaceflight companies. And so in um, writing up this, this analysis, we um, identified a need to bring together this multi-stakeholder group that was comprised um, of US regulators, bioethicists, um, space lawyers, and as well as former astronauts and uh, space medicine physicians to come up with um, a sort of ethical code of conduct, if you will, that um, we embarked on to evaluate what principles and practices should perhaps be carried over from existing policies um, and what new ethical issues um, had to be considered for the commercial spaceflight context. And, you know, the framework is really needed um, on at least two accounts right now. So the first is that in the United States, the Federal Aviation Administration um, is reviewing new flight regulations for safe commercial space vehicles. And um, they're reviewing these new uh, regulations in the context of an existing moratorium um, on, uh, on, on those regulations that expires at the end of the month. Um, secondly, the U.S. is also set to decommission their involvement in the International Space Station or the ISS by the year 2030, um, which still remains the only collaborative um, low Earth orbit research hub among spacefaring nations to date. So this move is really paving a direct path for commercial spaceflight companies to fill in this gap. Um, and indeed, you know, companies are racing to secure these government contracts to build new space stations um, in the I assess instead that we expect um, lots of human research to be conducted
0: okay so basically the, the framework that your team developed you came up with these four key principles so we'll have a look at some of these so the first one is social responsibility so in other words those who are privileged to travel in space should contribute to research that benefits all of society Do you think passengers on commercial space flights will be willing to take part in research studies?
2: I think many will consider it, um, and it's incumbent on both sponsors of research as well as researchers themselves to be transparent about both the benefits of participating um, as well as the heightened risks that are expected from the significant scientific uncertainty um, of how the human body functions in space long-term. Um, so the risks of research conducted in space is highly protocol-dependent um, just as they are on Earth. and could range from minimally risky, perhaps uh, an observational study that requires some sort of self-monitoring to maybe minorly invasive um, that might uh, require blood draws or other biospecimen collection, for example, um, to really highly risky studies like the intracranial pressure case I mentioned earlier.
0: Okay. And do you think there's a risk of people agreeing to take part in research just so they can get their trip into space?
2: It's an important question, and um, the quick answer is yes, especially considering that commercial crews are poised to fly many different kinds of people with different motivations um, for flight, from paying customers to former astronauts to employees of commercial uh, companies themselves. So this was an issue we discussed at length um, in the the consensus meeting, and it's the issue of undue inducement. And it's one we commonly face um, in terrestrial clinical trials actually, where the benefits of participating in research um, uh, can't be so great that it fundamentally alters how somebody would normally make decisions in the face of other of uh, the risks involved. So we draw um, attention to this issue of undue inducement in, in the paper and propose some ways um, of avoiding it, such as recruiting people to participate in research studies and on research missions who would already be going to space, um, as opposed to uh, offering this, you know, what we what could might be considered an excessive benefit um, to, to travel to space, just as you, as your question suggested, um to, to get a free trip up there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. So the second principle is scientific excellence. So as with any research, studies must be well designed, relevant, and original. So what sorts of experiments do you see future space travellers participating in? And are these going to be different to the studies that astronauts are performing today?
2: Well, if the past decades of NASA research and, and um, ESA research are any indication of the variety um, of studies, that potential for variety is also very great. Um, so the studies we should expect to see are those that attempt to answer you know, lingering questions about humans thrive um, in space environments long term. So just last week, um, NASA astronaut Frank Rubio just broke the record for the longest space mission by U.S. astronauts, um, and that was 355 five days. So considering that it will take nearly seven months to reach Mars and at least that long to return, future studies will really need to focus on how to sustain human life in space for longer. So research um, I find particularly compelling are those that study human behaviors and psychology and mental health um, on long duration space missions. Questions like what do crews uh, on a mission do with their dead or their sick? um, And how do we ensure the safety and welfare of people with various disabilities who have different clinical needs and who we expect um, to be uh, flying with commercial spaceflight companies in the near future. So these are the questions that um, I think are necessary in order to make spaceflight um, and long-duration missions safer for um, everyone.
0: Okay, that's that's interesting. That is indeed a lot different to the sort of things I guess that they're looking at now. Um, So the third principle is Proportionality. So this is maximising the value of the study while minimising harms to participants. Um, And you've sort of touched on this already. What, What sort of increased risks are there compared with similar studies performed on Earth?
2: So, proportionality refers to this realistic balancing of known or foreseen risks with anticipated benefit. And so, spaceflight, um, even though we've made huge strides um, in the engineering and human physiology of, of spaceflight, remains really this high risk, high reward endeavor. Um, and we argue. For the position in the paper that the add-on risks of research participation should be evaluated against the baseline risks of spaceflight itself. So there, first are there are many uh, additional risks to to spaceflight. Um, first and foremost, the environmental exposures, um, namely zero gravity and radiation, that are substantially different in space than. On Earth. Um, so, muscles without load bearing weight due to uh, zero gravity um, environments can lead to muscle atrophy um, and bone des- density weaknesses, while increased radiation um, heightens risk for all types of cancers. Um, Another risk that's not often considered a physical one, um, but rather an emotional or mental health one is the the risk of isolation and loneliness um, of being in space. And so this can have significant impacts on someone's um, mental well-being and and remains a considerable risk of people who participate in research or who will fly um, in space long-term. And I'll say that the only way we're able to um, characterize these risks and the extent to which um, they they pose, you know, heightened risk to people um, in space as, as more people travel there is that the data generated from studies are our most valuable resource and our most valuable insight into the, the extent of those risks. So it's the incredible time resources and sacrifice needed to gather just one data point, um, justify sharing this data, I, I think, whenever possible. And so there are additional risks when crews are small, um, and we worry about things like privacy and confidentiality. Um, and I think one of the, the worries is that People who opt to participate in research um, won't have some of won't enjoy some of the benefits um, of, of extensive data privacy um, because there are just so few people um, from which we're studying and, and on research on crewed missions. So, um, nevertheless, I think sharing high fidelity data from rigorously designed and executed studies really benefits the entire industry um, and especially so in a competitive market space like commercial spaceflight.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And and then finally, the fourth guideline is described as global stewardship. Can you explain what that means?
2: Absolutely. So there's at present um, obvious inequities in who gets to go to space, what scientific questions get prioritized in research and who ultimately makes those decisions. So we're... People on one planet in one solar system within what we think is an ever expanding universe, but we're a diverse people and therefore the research we conduct must be representative of humankind's diversity um, as we know it in order for that research to truly benefit everyone. So by by global stewardship, we mean really this responsible use of time of data that's been generated of natural resources that balance the interests um, society has on learning more about space and our place within it. Um, Future generations who will no doubt have greater familiarity um, and understanding of space than prior generations, Um, and to consider ultimately what human presence in space, what effect human presence in space will have on other species, on environments, and potentially other life we've yet to discover. Um, So we borrow the concepts of global stewardship from other disciplines such as environmental science um, and conservation studies because we think they have great relevance for guiding um, responsible human exploration in space. So global stewardship really conveys the sense of collective responsibility for the resources we take up to expand, you know, this frontier while being mindful of how resource investments um, in space will affect us here on Earth now and in the future.
0: Okay. So... You've got these uh, four principles. Um, How can you ensure that the commercial spaceflight companies actually stick to these suggested rules? Do you think you could um, somehow entrench the principles in a law that people have to keep to? Or do you think companies will create their own guidelines based on your suggestions?
2: So you've outlined the next phase of our research and our consensus. <laughs> so we are um, in, you know, the next the next phase is really looking to how we um, entrench these best practices in um, not only. Regulation, but also in guidelines that commercial companies um, can demonstrate you know good faith in good faith to the public and to other stakeholders um, that the the research they're conducting has uh, is both scientifically valuable and socially valuable so um, at present you know there are, are different arms and different policy levers that can be used um, to incentivize uh, commercial companies and, and other stakeholders to um, adopt some of these practices so regulation uh, is just one um, I think in such an emerging um, competitive space and, and competitive industry that um, these companies are there's a lot of eyes on these companies at the moment and so it's really um, in you know their their best interest Interest to put their best foot forward um, and demonstrate and be transparent with with the public um, about what studies they're doing, if any, um, sharing the results of those studies with the public, um, letting the public in on uh, on what things they're finding. Um, and and I think based on you know the, the the court of public opinion that that will be the strongest motivating factor and incentivizing um, factor for adopting the rules at present. But we're we're continuing this question um, and this issue of accountability um, is one we, we discussed at length.
0: And, and are you continuing to collaborate with some of these commercial spaceflight
2: companies? Not at the moment, but we are always looking to collaborate.
0: Okay. Um, so just sort of looking, looking ahead, how do you think commercial spaceflight will grow over the next decade?
2: I believe we'll witness in our lifetime um, more and more advanced research missions that fly to farther distances in our solar system. Um, I believe the commercial you know, space flight industry um, will expand both in number um, and in sophistication. Um, I believe that with artificial intelligence and machine learning, we'll be, we'll be able to better understand um, what changes happen to the human body, even at the molecular level um, in real time um, and be able to personalize risk calculi for any prospective person um, who wishes to travel to space. So I think the scientific innovation and technological innovation um, will expand considerably with greater um, commercial industry involvement, um, as well as, you know, our understanding of the built um, environment within space uh, vehicles. So these are just some of the things to look forward to.
0: Okay. And then my final question, do you see yourself ever taking part in a commercial space flight?
2: Uh, I do, actually. So if Elon or Jeff, you're listening, I'm ready to be the first astro- astroethicist in space.
0: Excellent. <laughs> right. Well, um, thank you very much for your time today. That's been really interesting. Thank you.
1: That was the ethicist Vasiliki Rahimzade in conversation with Physics World's Tammy Freeman. It's rare that a film is made about a physicist in the first place, and it's even rarer for such a film to be a blockbuster. But since its release in July, the movie Oppenheimer has taken nearly $1 billion at the box office, making it the highest-earning biographical film ever. The film is based on the Pulitzer Prize-winning biography of Robert Oppenheimer called American Prometheus, The Triumph and Tragedy of J. Robert Oppenheimer. The book was published in 2005 by Kai Bird and the late Martin Sherwin. And I'm pleased to say that the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast features an in-depth conversation with Kai Bird. Stories host Andrew Glester asks Byrd about how he and Sherwin uncovered Oppenheimer's enigmatic character. They chat about Oppenheimer's fraught membership in, and ultimate exclusion from, the American establishment. This is a topic that's very close to Byrd's heart, who has also written about former U.S. President Jimmy Carter and McGeorge Bundy and William Bundy, who shaped U.S. foreign policy during the Vietnam War. Byrd talks about how he uses biography to explain how power works in a complicated democracy like the U.S. The podcast also looks at the relevance of Oppenheimer's experience to people developing new technologies today, such as artificial intelligence. And Bird and Glester also discuss today's post-truth and populist politics through the eyes of Oppenheimer. Here is a snippet from the podcast in which Bird explains how Oppenheimer's appearance at a 1954 security hearing and the subsequent revocation of his security clearance had a chilling effect on American scientists.
3: You know Oppenheimer's life and what happened to him is a a, a major lesson. You know, in nineteen forty-five, he was hailed in America as um, uh, as the country's most famous scientist. His image was put on the cover of Time and Life, and uh, and then nine years later, he is literally destroyed in this kangaroo court. Of a security hearing and humiliated and uh, stripped of his security clearance and disinvited thereafter from university speeches that had been scheduled and you know he becomes he was once a scientist who was also a public intellectual speaking out about public policy issues and nine years you know in 1954 he was. Prohibited from any longer being a public intellectual, and of course, this sent a message to scientists everywhere. You know, beware of getting speaking out from your narrow lane of expertise because you could get in trouble politically. And so, this explains why even today uh, we do not have uh, uh, major. Public intellectuals who are respected, who are scientists—you uh, know, there are just not very many of them, and that's that's odd, given where we are in a uh, with a, a global civilization based on science.
1: To hear that interview, check out the latest episode of the Physics World Stories podcast. It's called The Biographer Who Inspired Christopher Nolan's blockbuster film Oppenheimer. You can find it on the Physics World website and at your favorite podcast provider. Also new on the website, the science journalist Anna Deming looks at how physicists are shedding light on why society appears to be angrier and more divided than ever. In a feature article, she explores the burgeoning field of sociophysics, looking at what mathematical analysis says about the role of voter stubbornness in elections, and why some bigoted communities languish in obscurity, while others rise to national prominence. After reading the article, I couldn't stop thinking that insights from sociophysics could be used to manipulate opinions and influence election outcomes, and not for the better. But as the French sociophysicist Serge Galam tells Deming, this is like any scientific discovery— It can be used in a good way or in a bad way. See what you think. The article is called The Laws of Division, Physicists Probe into the Polarization of Political Opinions. Today, it's unlikely that a sociophysicist would also lead the field in cosmology, quantum computing, and string theory. Physics has become highly specialized, and it seems like the days of the polymath are well and truly over. But things were different in the 18th and 19th centuries, when the polymath Thomas Young famously turned his attention to the optics of the double slit, the mechanics of elastic materials, and much, much more. Indeed, Young also did important work on fluids and human vision, was a trained physician, and as a self trained linguist, he helped decipher the scripts on the Rosetta Stone. On the Physics World website, the UK's astronomer royal Martin Rees looks at Young's many accomplishments through the lens of the book The Last Man Who Knew Everything, Thomas Young which is by Andrew Robinson. Rees's article is called Thomas Young, Prolific Polymath and Unassuming Genius. And it also explores why history can be unkind to polymaths like Young. And if the article encourages you to read Robinson's book, A free-to-read edition has been published online to celebrate the 250th anniversary of Young's birth. Many UK newspapers would refer to both Thomas Young and Martin Rees as boffins, a word that conjures up the image of a white man with unruly gray hair who spouts incomprehensible scientific jargon while waving around a steaming test tube. While some physicists say that they're proud to be called boffins, others worry that the term conjures up a stereotype that makes it difficult to improve the diversity of people working in physics. Earlier this year, the Institute of Physics, which represents physicists in the UK and Ireland, launched its Bin the Boffin campaign to encourage media outlets to stop using the term While the Daily Mirror was quickly on board, the Daily Star launched its own Save Our Boffins petition to counter the IOP's campaign. On the Physics World website, Rachel Youngman, the Deputy Chief Executive of the Institute of Physics, explains why the IOP is politely but firmly asking the media not to use the term. That article is called Why the Institute of Physics Launched a Campaign to Get the Media to Bin the Boffin. I'm afraid that's all the time we have for this week's podcast. Thanks to Vasiliki Rahim Zadeh and Tammy Freeman for joining me today. And a special thanks to our producer Fred Isles. We'll be back again next week. But until then, Goodbye. <music> physics world.